Good morning, my name is Rick. Let's pay attention to what God tells us in the Bible from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. In him we have also received an inheritance, because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. Thank you, Rick. Dear friends, have you ever dreamt or fantasized that one day you get a phone call where you were told that a distant relative recently passed and left you a million dollar inheritance? We've all heard crazy stories of inheritances being passed down to unsuspecting people. The waitress that faithfully served the old man week after week had no idea that she was the only friend of the old man and later would discover that he le uh, left his uh, estate to her when he passed. Or there's a story of the homeless person who discovers that he is the closest living relative to a long lost uncle who has left him a fortune. I actually came across a true story of a woman named Leona Helmsley, a billionaire socialite who left $12 million to her dog, two million more than she gave her brother. Five years ago, my dad's cousin, who is a widow, who has no children, and who is really well off, gave me a phone call out of the blue. And she said, Jeffrey, can we meet and talk? It's something important. I want to talk to you about my will. I must confess, I got a little excited. <laughs> and so we met for coffee at the Starbucks uh, right next to Kohl's uh, off of Jeffrey and Tribuco where she conveyed and asked, will you serve as the executor of my will? Now, it wasn't exactly the news I wanted to hear, and yet I was honored that she trusted me with such a responsibility. Now, I know for a lot of us, inheritance isn't something that we often think about, unless you're drawing up a will or nearing death. But in the Bible, Inheritance is talked about a lot. Inheritance is one of the central themes of the Bible. It's a thread that binds the 66 books of the Bible together. And this morning, I wanted to help you understand the significance of this theme, believing that the more you grasp the meaning of inheritance, the greater your faith will grow, for it serves as a catalyst for our worship of God and deepens our wonder of the gospel. 
Now, the reason why I want to talk about inheritance is because it's at the forefront of the passage that our brother Rick just read. Verse 11 states, in him we have also received an inheritance. Now, I want you to know that the we here in verse 11 is a narrow we. When he says we have received an inheritance, he's not referring to all Christians. Rather, he has in mind specifically Jewish Christians because he's going to explain in the very next verse that we are those who first believed. And so he's saying we Jewish Christians were the first to believe in the gospel and therefore received an inheritance. But then in verse 13, he shifts from we to you. And in in saying you, he now has in mind the Ephesian Christians, mostly of whom are Gentiles. And he proceeds to say, you too have an inheritance. And the reason why I know that is because you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit serves as a down payment of our inheritance. Now we all know how a down payment works, right? For example, when you buy a house, the bank asks you to put a significant percentage of the price down, normally 20%. This down payment serves as the buyer's commitment to pay off the rest of the loan. It acts as a guarantee that you will make due with full payment. And so what Paul is saying in these verses is God demonstrates his commitment to us, his commitment to deliver on our inheritance, so much so that he's given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, a partial payment that the rest will follow in the future. And so what Paul is saying in these verses is, we Jewish Christians have received an inheritance But don't lose heart, you too also receive an inheritance. And we know this to be true because you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so at the central focus of our passage is this theme of inheritance. And keep in mind that throughout Ephesians 1, Paul has been detailing a laundry list of all the highlights of our salvation. He's talked about our union with Jesus. He's talked about how we're adopted in Christ. He's talked about how we're redeemed in Jesus Christ. And now he highlights another element, our inheritance. Now, to appreciate why inheritance is such a blessing, what I want to do is take you on a journey in studying the development of inheritance through the Bible. My journey with you will be divided into five phases of inheritance. Now, I know what you're thinking, five? Pastor Jeff, your sermons are usually only three points, and so you're getting a little nervous. Well, don't worry, all five points are really long, okay? (laughs) Phase one. These, okay, so these five phases include a promised inheritance, 
a gained inheritance, a disappointing inheritance, a better inheritance, and a wondrous inheritance. Let's start with the first phase, a promised inheritance. The theme of inheritance first comes into prominence in Genesis 17, where God makes a covenant with Abraham. In this covenant, what's often commonly understood is that God promises that Abraham will be the father of many nations. What we often forget is that there's also an additional promise that he makes to Abraham. This promise is found in Genesis 17, verse eight. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. And so here in this covenant, God promises promises Abraham and his descendants, I'm going to give you an inheritance. It's the land of Canaan, otherwise known as the promised land. And so afterwards, we find Abraham's descendants looking forward to the fulfillment of this promise. We find God's people, the nation of Israel, longing for this inheritance. This longing would come to its climax when they are enslaved in Egypt. Under the whip of Pharaoh, the Israelites longed for the day where they no longer worked for someone else and worked on someone else's land. They longed for the day where they would work their own land and enjoy the fruits of their own labor. And so you can imagine how hopeful and joyous they were when God says to Moses in Exodus 6, verse eight, I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. God tells the enslaved Israelites Don't lose heart. I haven't forgotten my promise. Your inheritance will come. Of course, this longing for their inheritance would intensify even more during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, living day to day, month to month, year to year under the blazing hot desert sun, feeling the sand inside their tents, again, fueled their longing, can't wait for the day when we could finally live in our own home. And so for much of Israel's early history, it was marked by a great longing for this promised inheritance. This leads us to phase two, a gained inheritance. Finally, after 400 years of enslavement, and another 40 years in the wilderness, Israel enters the promised land. They gain their inheritance from God. This is detailed in the book of Joshua as Joshua leads the nation of Israel into the promised land and the book of Joshua ends then with the distribution of the land to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They each get their portion of the inheritance. And so uh, you can imagine, uh, you know, when a will is read, you have all the relatives uh, sitting around a table 
waiting to hear what they get to inherit from their old grandma. In the same way, the book of Joshua ends with a detailing of each of the portions of the inheritance the tribes get. And so it ends with a huge ceremony afterwards as Israel worships God and pledges allegiance to their promise-keeping king. And it is at this point for those of us who have watched many Disney movies to expect to hear the words, and they lived happily ever after. But if you've read the rest of the Old Testament, you know that doesn't happen. This then leads us to phase three, a disappointing inheritance. Israel quickly discovers that life in the promised land wasn't all that they thought it'd be. Though there were certainly periods of blessing and joy, I think of King Solomon's reign, there were many seasons of grief and heartache. Disease still plagued them. Enemies threatened them. Drought and famine dogged them. In addition to the threat of external circumstances, the greatest enemy Israel faced was within. When you read the book of Judges, when you read First and Second Kings, when you read the major and minor prophets, you just quickly discover that having a land or home to call your own did not make you immune to the devastating power of sin. Time and time again, Israel rejects God's rule for self-rule. Israel does what was right in their own eyes rather than what is right in God's eyes. Israel rebels against God and bows down to various idols. True, they may have been set free from slavery to Egypt, but clearly the Bible shows us they are still enslaved to sin and death. True, they may have changed their surroundings, but they could not change their hearts. Does this sound familiar at all? How many of us grow up with different dreams, goals, fantasies of our own life? Oh, if only I could get into my dream school. If only I get my dream job. If only I can marry my dream girl or my dream boy. If only we can move into our dream house. If only we could raise our dream family. Life will be set complete, I will have arrived, we say to ourselves. But all of us who have achieved any one of these objectives come to the sober realization it's not as fulfilling as we thought it would be. Sure, there's moments of joy and celebration Perhaps you even throw a party for any one of these objectives you reach, but soon enough the euphoria wears off, the novelty dies, 
and you're back at square one. Like Israel, we see, though I may have changed my external circumstances, I cannot change my heart. As the sin that plagues this world and plagues our hearts, we bring into our dream school. We bring into our dream job. We bring into our dream marriage. We bring into our dream family. And we are disappointed. Some of us even disillusioned. Like Israel, our dreams are not what we thought they would be. This leads us to phase four, a better inheritance. What are we to make of God's promise to Abraham? Is this one of those bait and switches where God promises Abraham this fabulous inheritance, but it's not what they thought it would be? Is God some greasy car salesman who sells Israel a fake uh, bag of goods? No. You see, the land of Canaan wasn't ever to be the ultimate inheritance God had in mind for his people. The land of Canaan, the promised land, served as more of a signpost, a symbol pointing the Israelites to the true inheritance of God. Kind of like the way the animal sacrifices function in the Old Testament. Remember, God commanded Israel to sacrifice animals when they worshiped. These animal sacrifices, however, ultimately pointed us to the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. In the same way, the land of Canaan which resides in the Middle East today, was designed to be a signpost to the ultimate inheritance of God, the kingdom of heaven where God dwells in his perfect glory. Some Israelites recognized this purpose. Some Israelites recognized that there was a better inheritance. One of these Israelites include Abraham, the the one whom the promise of inheritance was originally made. Listen to the words of Hebrews 11, eight through 10. This is really fascinating. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out, and even though he did not know where he was going, by faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. This is fascinating because Abraham finally reaches the promised land. And you could say, yes, God has fulfilled his promise to me. I have the inheritance of God. But the Hebrews author says, but he lived in tents in the promised land. He lived as a foreigner, as an immigrant. Why? Because in Abraham's heart of hearts, he knew this isn't the true inheritance God created me for. His heart was set on the city whose builder and maker is God. 
his heart was set on the ultimate inheritance. Other Israelites also saw the better inheritance. The Levites are an example of this. I mentioned before that when Israel entered the promised land, each of the 12 tribes are divvied up a portion of the promised land for their inheritance. Tribe of Joshua, you get this plot of land over here. Tribe of Reuben, you get the land between this river and that mountain range. Caleb, your tribe gets that land way over there. But when it comes to the tribe of Levi, everyone is shocked. This is their inheritance. Joshua 13, 33 says this. But Moses did not give a portion to the tribe of Levi. The Lord, the God of Israel, was their inheritance, just as he had promised them. I can imagine some of the Levites there saying, what? We don't get any land? What was all this wandering in the wilderness for? God, you are our inheritance? We got gypped. I want my own land like everyone else. But as history progressed, And as life in the promised land played out, soon enough, these same Levites were singing a different tune. God, you didn't jip us. We actually have the better inheritance. Last Sunday, we sang Psalm 84, verse 10, at the end of worship. A psalm written by a Levite. Psalm 84, verse 10. Better a day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than live in the tents of wicked people. This Levite is saying, I get it now. God, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the outskirts of the kingdom of heaven than live anywhere else in this world. We have a better inheritance. Another Psalm written by a Levite, Psalm 73, verse 25 through 26 says this, who do I have in heaven but you? I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my what? Portion, my inheritance forever. The psalmist is saying, give me Jesus. All I want is you, O God. Nothing in this world matters. Nothing else compares to you. And so through the Levites and through Abraham, God gives us a glimpse of what the true inheritance he had in mind for his people. The inheritance that God has always wanted us to enjoy and experience was nothing less than himself. 
It is in heaven where you and I get to experience and enjoy God in all of his fullness and perfections. It is in heaven where we get to commune with God, no longer sabotaged by the damaging effects of sin, no longer hindered by our brokenness. No, all things will be made new and our hearts will be changed to sin no more and cancer will be no more. Oppression will be no more. Addiction will be no more. Abuse and trauma will be no more. In heaven, there will only be untainted, unfiltered, uninterrupted communion with the God of all love, joy, and peace. God is our inheritance. We get to see him face to face. And who makes this possible? Jesus does. Do you know what Jesus' name in Hebrew is? Joshua. Not accidental. Just as Joshua led the Israelites into the earthly promised land. Jesus has come so that in his life, death, and resurrection, he might lead his people into the heavenly promised land. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4 declares, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, undefading, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Dear friends, this is your future. This is the inheritance that is waiting for you. We will commune with God in all of his glory and beauty. Now, if you're tracking my sermon, I've only talked about four phases. There's still one more left. A wondrous inheritance. When you read Ephesians 1, verse 11, the Greek translated as we have also received an inheritance. It's actually not the best translation. The verb there in that phrase is in the passive voice. And so a lot of scholars agree that instead of reading as we have also received an inheritance, it's better read as we are God's inheritance. We are God's inheritance a point made clearer in verse 18, which we'll look at next week. Dear friends, here lies the greatest wonder of the gospel. The greatest wonder of the gospel is not how we sinners get to inherit God. Now, I don't want to minimize the glory and the joy of that fact that we undeserving sinners get to inherit God himself forever. 
You can't overemphasize how amazing that reality is. But there is a wonder even greater than that. The greatest wonder of the gospel is not how we sinners get to inherit God, but rather why God would choose to inherit us sinners. As much as we look forward to inherit God for eternity, the mysteries of mysteries is that our God looks forward to inherit us for eternity. It's a no-brainer that for mankind, for creatures like us, there is no greater joy, treasure, or delight than being able to commune with God face to face. There's no doubt, no question that the greatest gift you and I could ever receive is God himself. But the Bible tells us that for God, we are the object of his affections. We are his treasure, his delight. In fact, we are an inheritance so precious to him that we are worth suffering for, we are worth dying for. As you can see, when you grasp the full scope of inheritance in the Bible, from inheritance promised to gained, disappointing inheritance, a better inheritance, and lastly, a wondrous inheritance, your heart cannot help but explode with the reality of God's amazing love as we picture God waiting for us in heaven, I get to inherit you. A lot of Christians and non-Christians and philosophers and musicians will say and hypothesize, theorize, what makes the world go around is love. Love is the purpose of life. Love is the essence of life. I wonder why that is. Perhaps it's because this world is created by a God of deep, passionate love. And that the human love we experience are but distant echoes of that divine love God has for us. Dear friends, inheritance is what awaits us in eternity. This is what we get to enjoy when we reach our final days. Whether your name is Tim Keller or an old widow whose name no one knows, if you believe in Jesus, if you trust in him alone for your salvation, you get to inherit God himself, and God gets to inherit you. Let's pray.
Father, we are humbled and overwhelmed by your amazing love. It's one thing, O Lord, that because of Jesus, we get to inherit you and you become our reward. It's quite another to see and understand how you get to inherit us and how we become your reward. Lord, we thank you for this love story of epic proportions. It seems almost unbelievable, and yet it is true. We thank you, Lord, for being our Joshua and for carrying us into the land of promise where we will commune with you and you will commune with us for eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.